Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with you today. And let's start with our disclaimer, which is that this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. It does not constitute working with a mental health provider. Please seek out one in your area to work on your unique issues. So, folks, today I've got a very interesting uh, discussion with you with a fellow colleague and a friend that I've made, especially as I moved into becoming my private practice. And uh, also, let's be frank, some of the events of 2020 also helped continue to solidify our connection. And uh, my friend here has written a book, and it's very much focused on very for, for all of my male listeners. And for those of you who also want to support the men in your life, you want to listen and take a look at this book about the struggles that are going on. It's not everything that, shall we say, the toxic patriarchy has put forth. So today, I wanted to introduce you to Eric Fitzmadrid. I'll have him correct my, the name because I'm all, as you know, I screw up people's names, not that I want to, but just that dyslexic brain has issues with trying to sound certain things out. Uh, they are a, de- a therapist specializing in relationship and sexual issues in San Francisco Bay Area. His specialty is helping men improve their sex lives by learning to regulate their emotions, remove sexual entitlement, and hone their sexual consent and negotiation skills. Eric is a member of the American Association of Sexu- Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. He also known as ASEC. He has been published in a in an academic book and academic journals, and has spoken to at multiple conferences. He is also a trained therapist and taught many at graduate courses in psychology. Eric has a PhD in clinical psychology from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which is also the school I went to as well. Uh, he is a poly he is polyamorous and bisexual, and lives with his wife of. 23 years, and his life partner of six years in the San Francisco East Bay area of California. So, Eric, welcome to Untying Knots. Thank you for having me so much. Not a problem. Thank you for being here. And that, that is right. We did have a conversation about the fact that we both went to the same school, but yeah. very different points in time. I think so. Yeah. So, as I ask everybody, how did you get here, since we know what school we went to? The big thing for me, I think of two different streams that brought me here. One is um, my personal journey as a polyamorous man coming to terms with my identity, going through some difficult periods of time, um, Mm. cheating uh, on my partner because I hadn't integrated some parts of my identity, and going through my personal journey of integrating those lessons and then also kind of coalescing that into the developing identity as a therapist, working with relationships, heterosexual couples, gay couples, and finding that some of that that personal development that I had gone through 
was frankly very needed among mm -hmm. a lot of my male clients at different mm -hmm. stages of development, depending on where they were. And so I found that um, it was really important to take a look at the different needs that men have to get caught up to the emotional and relationship skills that we need in order to be successful in our in our relationships and in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And let's also be frank, this goes for anything, anyone who identifies themselves as male, not just heterosexual men, because there are and, many gay men who also. Absolutely. And not just and not just cis men either. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, um, however you come into this identity, there are privileges and lenses that can begin to insulate you from awareness of what's happening mm -hmm. for partners. Mm -hmm. right. So you've written a book called The Better Man, a, consent, a guide to consent, stronger relationships, and hotter sex. Yes. It was a very long journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can bet. Did you start it during the pandemic or was it something that you worked on beforehand? I started it in early 2018 mm -hmm. as the Me Too hashtag was proliferating on social media. I was aware that, you know, those most of the stories there were very much about the predatory sexual behavior. But I was also continuously seeing in my couples the more garden variety consent violations, sexual entitlement, sexual pressure, um, uh, high desire partners being unable to regulate that desire and causing you know unintended emotional blackmail. Like, oh, if I don't sleep with my high desire partner, then they're going to be in a bad mood. So I have to regulate their moods for them. And there was a particular story that um, started percolating early 2018, and it gave me this uh, connection between what was happening in the Me Too hashtag cultural movement and what I had been seeing in my clients. So I started and I was going to write a blog post and one post mm. became two and two became four. And by the time four became eight, I realized, oh no, I'm writing a book. I wish that it had picked an easier topic because this is going to be challenging. Uh, yes, that aspect of quickly turns into something else, the snowball effect. Yeah. But equally that standpoint of, yeah, it's a difficult topic because it actually is a very complex and very nuanced situation as opposed to something that is quote unquote simple. Yeah, and it touches on so much pain and trauma, the pain and trauma that high desire partners or, you know, as I came to write it for men, the pain that men cause to their partners, and also the pain that we as men have experienced, the traumas that we've endured that have placed us in this constricted emotional, relational, and consent space that we then suffer inside of when isolation and loneliness, as Aaron Johnson mentioned a couple of, mm -hmm. uh, 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 some time ago on your show, the um, scarcity experience and um, the touch starvation that we go through. Mm -hmm. Which very much kind of gets tied into it. I know I've talked with some of my male clients and I've even some of my female clients about the idea that in our society, the idea of intimacy, vulnerability is only available to a man during sex. Yes. Absolutely. The other time, no. Right. 
And so when does that then become the aspect of men finding and finding ways to initiate that and it actually backfires or it's just like, no, their partner is not in that space or let alone the partner has their own ideas about what is masculine and this moment of intimacy and vulnerability clashes against it. Right. I have to say, with full respect to our female colleagues, there are times where you're actually also feeding into the patriarchy by holding these images. Yeah. And I think one of the things I'm trying to um, support the readers of the book in doing is attending to, if we're doing our work in extracting ourselves from patriarchy, it's indirectly going to invite that um, development from our partners, male, female, um, you know, gender, queer, whoever that is, we're supporting them in that process of also identifying where patriarchy might have snuck its way into their view of relationships too. Because mm-hmm. no one is immune to any of these ideas. They will sneak their way in either obviously or quietly and insidiously. Absolutely. And yeah. they often they often lay the groundwork that our erotic landscapes get mapped onto. And we didn't mm-hmm. necessarily choose that, either the cultural programming or how our erotic landscape got formed in response to it. But we can attend to that and begin to unravel those threads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, something this weekend I was just you know killing time looking at some of the threads and reels and so forth. And there was one I think from the show The Alias. Okay, where um, and it's like the Freudian Victorian period talking about a um, behavioral science uh, behavioralist like what we have with like the FBI and all of that. And I was talking to one of the characters who is a woman about another woman they, that was across the way who had unfortunately killed her children mm. because of the stress that she was in trying to live up, having to live up to being of a certain society level. Mm-hmm. And at that point, helping that female character to have empathy for this other woman and also recognize the stress she was under trying to live up to those social goals, which men are under that same way too. We are, but the responsibility or the expectation that we be providers, protectors, strong, expressive of our emotions, but not too much, sexual, but mm-hmm. not too sexual, um, all of these things that end up making it so that any actual lived experience of manhood, gay, straight, cis, queer, ends up not fitting the bill. Mm-hmm. And yet so many of us believe that we're supposed to, or we should, or we can, but there isn't any way to fit all of the expectations that have been put onto us. Mm-hmm. Which also gets into that aspect of the archetypes that often get talked about by men as well, being like the king, the magician, the hunter. Um, I know there's five. I think it's like the, um, one we could say the fool. There's yeah. one more, and I can't think of what it is at the moment. And sage? every time I sage might be the one that, that is it. So, sort of magician, hunter, king, the fool, the sage. That makes kind of sense. And I keep looking at that as like you're missing. There should be a sixth one, which is what does it mean for you to be the supporter? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's ways of being masculine in being a supporter as well, as opposed to being the head bearing all the weight, which these other positions can do. Absolutely. I mean, whether it is 
you know, something a little more traditionally in the gender role of like going over to a friend's house to do some house uh, home improvement stuff, Mm -hmm. or whether it's um, making food, volunteering, offering hugs, just being present. Our Mm The message that we get is that our labor, our work, our income is so much more important or valuable to the people around us than our presence. But our presence is beautiful and needed and creates vitality and vibrance and makes people want us around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I, um, I go to, as a gay man, I go with the, to a weekly dinner with some of my friends. We've been going... Mm-hmm. For the last now 20 years and wow. i know these last two weeks as we've been sitting having our dinner we've had two different women in both situations walk up to us and say it's so great to see you guys going out are you guys members of clubs like no we're just friends getting together having this meal yeah yeah and especially as gay men it's like it's not about sex it's not about any of those things it's about right. us spending time being friends laughing having our jokes. I think this, uh, very often that's one of the things that I talk with my straight men in my practice about. They're, when gay men go through the process of accepting their identity, they begin be- questioning the entire patriarchal package. Which parts of this serve me? Which parts fit? Which parts are authentic? And which parts aren't? And so I think there's a developmental process that they naturally go through that helps at least question sometimes, you know, not everything, not everything gets weeded out on the first pass naturally, but there's an embrace of vibrant sexual identity an embrace of community an embrace of our heart connections that queer men go through that straight men can benefit from Mm. to notice there's still men Mm -hmm. and you can be too, by questioning some of these same things. It's one of the core pieces that I, I think is so important in men's development is to embrace multiple identities inside of manhood so that we can see each other and soften the limits we put on ourselves too. Not to mention that as you go through life, you're going to switch into different roles. You may have several roles playing at the same time, but you're yes. not going to stay into this this one place the entire time and the amount of energy some men will put into trying to just stay in that one role which they can't forever right there's a point at which even if you've been very successful very authentic in fitting into a traditional masculine manhood role and that has seemed great for you at some point even tom cruise has got to age out of doing his Mm -hmm. own stunts i mean Mm -hmm. it's not going to last forever time will come and catch us all Mm -hmm. and if we've pinned our identity on fitting one role as a man then our identity begins to crack when age or time or life circumstances start pulling some of those elements away But if we've broadened our understanding of what it means to be a man, then we're much more resilient to life changes, aging, you know, shifting circumstances in the economy or our career. We aren't affected by that then. Our identity isn't challenged. 
And then we have more resources to stay resilient and flexible with what's happening around us. Very much so. And I know that a bunch of that is part of what you discuss in this book. So let's go into go ahead and get into the book. And let's I've do sort it. of marked a couple of sections. We can talk okay. a little more about that. So one of those sections, and I'll, I'll read a little of it, is uh, page 35. Okay. Uh, you get to consent or not to. And I'll read a small excerpt from here. Sure. If you think that negotiating consent with your partner is like getting the keys to unlock doors to get things you want, then you're missing the point. Consent is for you. Clear because consent processes help you make sure you avoid a friends with benefit relationship when you want a long-term relationship. Clear consent processes processes help you avoid a makeout session that ends out in an orgasm when you know that would have likely lived. Ends without an orgasm when you know that would likely leave you feeling rejected or frustrated. A clear consent process can help you avoid unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted infections, misconducts, feeling violated or used, a bad reputation, and unfulfilled sex or unfulfilled sex. Con- consent conversations aren't about you getting the other person's consent. Consent course conversations are about finding what you both say yes to and then doing that. So tell us more. This is a big part of what I'm trying to do in the conversation with men is kind of put this notion of consent on its head. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking about doing consent right to get what you want, like really beginning to understand men, our hearts, our sexual interests, our moods, we also need protection. We also mm-hmm. can fe- end up feeling, I mean, especially um, in um, our experiences of dating, we can feel fetishized for being tall, for being black, for being this, for being that. We can um, find our pathways to protecting the vulnerable, precious elements of what we have to offer a potential partner, sexual or romantic, by being clear about, hey, are you also a safe person for me to be with? Mm-hmm. Do, do you report um, about our dates what I felt about our dates afterwards? You know, if you as a man get into a situation where your partner afterwards is saying, oh, I felt this, I felt that, I felt like you were doing, you know, 19 different things that you as the man were not aware of doing, didn't track, didn't hear about, were asking about, were monitoring consent, that may not feel safe for you in the future. Protect yourself by using your own capacity to consent or not. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a very much one of those reflections of what we've talked about with the Me Team movement. Which, as was brought up, a lot of recognition about the women that were hurt in, say, Hollywood and so forth. But there was also a number of men that also came forward who were pressured. And even then, did it really have anything to do with uh, sexuality or more had to do with power? Absolutely. That that predatory aspect is almost always about power Mm. when when it comes to controlling and um it's it's not even about sex anymore a person who's doing that will do uh, any number of other abuses of power that have nothing to do with sex too mm-hmm. all right so let's move on to one of the other sections okay sure so the next one i marked here 
was in the section around real deal about testosterone. Okay. And you give several realities, but one of the realities uh, we'll talk about is on page 46, which is reality four. Testosterone does not create aggression. Yeah. The strongest science concerning emotions and a hormone suggest, hormones suggests that testosterone is best viewed as a competition hormone. But don't confuse competition with aggression. In fact, the relationship of testosterone and aggression is weak. What scientists refer to as competition covers a broad range of behaviors that may include physical aggression, but may also include nonviolent competitions, such as the mating dance of male birds, who may never fight one another. Therefore, I prefer to refer to the motivation that testosterone creates in people as a performance motivation, not to be confused with performance demand, see page four. Instead of competition, testosterone motivates us to perform to increase our social status. Testosterone increases in the presence of other performances, increases again when we're successful in outperforming others, and decreases when others outperform us. The decrease in testosterone may steer us away from challenges from, from challenge to reevaluate our strategy. That a social event can change our hormone levels shows that we can deduce or no, we can't deduce truth about ourselves from biology without considering how sociology also affects biology. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a bit more about that experience. As you were um, reading, I just had this thought, you know, I bet that if we took um, drag performers, mm-hmm. that we would find that some of the top drag performers had high levels of testosterone, um, Probably. which at a certain level, you know, violates some of the expectations about that um, a lot of straight cis men will have about masculinity and about the role that testosterone might be playing in their lives. You know, another example that I often give about this is um, sociology determines a lot, and you can see it in the difference between violence and aggression in a basketball game versus violence and aggression in a hockey game. Mm. Hockey has rules for when you're allowed to take the gloves off, how much punching you're allowed to do, and how long you're able to fight and under what circumstances. And so there are fights in hockey. Mm-hmm. But in basketball, physical touch is much more highly regulated. Conflict is not allowed. It's not a physical, it's not a, a fighting sport. Mm-hmm. And so you get fined if you do anything. And so it doesn't happen very often. Sociology sets the rules for aggression, not the presence or absence of testosterone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, which there's a couple of different thoughts that come to mind. One of the classic ones I always have mentally is that why does it always descend into blood sports when we look at some of these futures and these dystopian futures? Yeah. That it comes out into this need for this sport has become bloody and dangerous and taking lives. And yeah. yet we've had sports that never have that come to pass and they're still just as enjoyed. I think some of that may also be that it ends up being a set piece for this dystopia has come to Mm -hmm. extract so much of the human dignity and value from its people that we even do this now. Mm -hmm. And nine times out of 10, those are usually going to be mostly male dominated fiat games that are presented in that. But equally too, going back to this notion about what you talk about the birds and how 
their displays are going on there. I mean, we could even talk about the dung beetle with the aspect of the female dung beetle will pick the one who brings her the biggest dung ball. <laughs> which yeah. sort of goes back to something that I talk about when I'm talking with my clients about when they're looking at who do they want to have a relationship with? One of those questions I ask, I ask them to factor three things. One, what is the physical appearance, which gets back into what these birds are doing? Two, what is that sort of, sort, of, sort of financial, social, economic level of protection that they want in this individual? They got to have a job. They got to have a car. They need to have their own place or they you know, so forth. And then the, the bigger section is what is your emotional type? What are the emotional qualities you're going to be living with day to day beyond these other two? Mm-hmm. And the notion that so much of our sense of aggression versus assertion for our and display and social aspects is more about that aspect of peacocking. Mm-hmm. And it's the male peacock that has all the luscious feathers, not the female. That's right. And I think one thing that's really important, it's a little bit later in that section, is just to identify that it, women also are influenced by their testosterone to perform. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. they have different levels of androgen sensitivity, but they're still influenced by it. And so Mm -hmm. you still can't look at biology and just determine what's happening. The the context of what performing looks like is sociologically determined. Mm -hmm. Which brings us also to that standpoint of where we have had to where we've had to realize Darwin was incomplete. He was had an idea at the time. He had a piece of the puzzle, not all the puzzle. Yep. And the standpoint of, yeah, the survival of the fitness, well, it's not so much survival of the fitness, it's the survival of who's the most opportunic, who can maneuver the social standing to get themselves to where they are. And how does that display in power? I mean, I really don't want to go there, but let's just think about (laughs) certain things that we have watched between 2016 to 2020 Mm -hmm. about certain individuals' behaviors Mm -hmm. and that aspect of being a peacock. Yeah. Yeah. But not necessarily the, well, let's just say I'm going to try and respect some people. I'm trying here, but that <laughs> thinking that goes into that, did it get so caught up in being the peacock that it forgot to take care of business Yeah, or absolutely. allowed the wrong people to take care of business? Yeah. And I think there's also an element that some of those historical events show, which is our society is in flux. So when we talk about mm-hmm. sociologically determined, we're currently in the process of changing some of these things together. And we can decide what we want the society to look like. We can make it look like something that works for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I don't want to talk about that one because we've got one more and then we, we can do one okay. more section from the book before we okay. go to break. And I want to try right. to find a, let's see here. <laughs> nope, not, we'll save that one for a little later. <laughs> so let's actually talk about one of your other exercises in here. Okay. As a, before we wrap up. So one of the exercises is on page 205. Okay. And this is the exercise identifying your trauma, your core wounds, and their mm-hmm. consequences. Mm-hmm. And so what you've got listed here, I'm just going to read a section of it because you want the rest of this. You're going to have to go get the book. Uh, now is now is your turn. Now it is your turn to trace your core wounds into your relationship behaviors write down behave answers to the following questions number one 
What significant events in my life have changed my experience of people or the world in negative ways? This could be a childhood experience, a trauma during military service, illness, death of a loved one, or your own or your own or someone else's addiction, and many more examples. Two, even if I'm not proud of it, even if I know it isn't literally true, what belief did I develop about myself, people, or the world to help me protect myself from that wound? Three, when in when I'm in a relationship, romantic, friendship, or important business relationship, if someone does not uh, someone does something that I fear confirms my belief about question two, what do I do to protect myself from that fear? So let's talk a little bit about this exercise before we go to break. Okay. I think that you know there's a lot of buildup by the time that I get to this point in the book, but one of the things that I'm trying to get men to understand is that we come to our relationships with history that has shaped us. And a lot of our history is history that we use to armor and protect the most important parts of our hearts, the most important parts of our thoughts and our needs. Sometimes that's even so powerful that we don't notice what our needs, what our feelings, what our emotions are. And so if we can begin tracing, okay, you know, my parents got divorced and it was very acrimonious. I came out of that with a story. You can't trust anyone to be there for with you forever. And that means that whenever a relationship gets too deep and somebody comes knocking on the door to my heart, I close them out and I push them away. Now, if you can at least trace that, you can begin to examine when you might feel like you could challenge that belief. And what does it look like for you? Does it mean letting the next person in? Does it mean vetting a person so that you could really find out, is this a person trustworthy, uh, who's trustworthy enough for me to try opening my heart? Or do you focus maybe more on friendships rather than romantic relationships and see if you could build friendships that you could trust and lean on first? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's in business. But the point is that when we begin to notice that we have these restrictions, this armor, we can choose when and where we'll let it down, when and where we'll let people into our hearts, and how we'll begin to become more connected in the ways that we're really hungry for, rather than trying to extract that connection where we can get it. Mm -hmm. And especially that standpoint of that there are so many other relationships that we are a part of than just the romantic one Absolutely. that still have an, have an impact that still have a hurt. Um, a conference I was speaking at earlier this year, uh, after I given some uh, talked about a situation with several of the attendees, and then a month or so later, I hear a message back from them about what transpired in connection to their organization and event and dealing with narcissism. And my response to them is, well, you know, you and your associates who stepped away probably should go get counseling for this event. Mm-hmm. More people would be willing to go and get counseling because of the breakup of a relationship versus dealing with a toxic organizational experience that is going to affect them the next time they deal with another organization. And they were talking about starting their own organization. So it's like, how not to carry that toxic wound and that armoring into the new organization they wanted to build, or at least have it better in frame of mind. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things you're highlighting there is that we have this tendency to 
relate to an organization, a company, a community, as if it is also an individual. Mm -hmm. And so when we get laid off or pushed out of a group or community, that cuts very deeply as if we were Mm -hmm. betrayed by a single individual. Sometimes we were, and that's what caused it. But sometimes it it just um, is a part of um, an institutional process, but the wounds still cut deeply and personally. Mm -hmm. Do we need mm-hmm. to attend to that? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah, actually, that was a conversation with a probably different set of client was talking about her leaving, having to leave a job, going to another one, and she was up, basically still carrying the wounds of how she was treated from the old job into the new one. Mm-hmm. And I equated that to, this is the equivalent of you breaking up with X person, and yeah. now you're dating Y person, but you're yeah. still upset at X, and you're taking it out on Y. Absolutely. Yep. So that core trauma is something that applies, again, to everybody. But the, the notions of what patriarchy has said about men dealing with trauma is also problematic. Well, we, we're supposed to shake it off, right? We're supposed mm-hmm. to um, rub dirt in it and move on. We're supposed mm-hmm. to, um, you know, get back into the process. I'll sometimes talk about it as paving over the swamp. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, sure, you can put a parking lot on that and pretend that it never happened. All of those emotions, all of that wetness, all of that pain, but you're going to create sinkholes if you do that. And if not sinkholes, you're going to set your entire environment up for being flooded because that swamp was part of regulation. You got it. It took that extra water or extra emotion out. Not right. to mention that idea about, it always comes back to that aspect of where did this idea about rubbing dirt in the wound come from? Now, right. the only thing I can, I can think of, which I do, we do found, is that soil does contain natural antidepressants in it. That one seems like a far jump, but that, that putting dirt is going to help you get through the antidepressant wound that this wound caused, but still. Right, right. It, that it, we're back to that armoring, that box that we mm-hmm. say, and, and that pervasive ethos of not paying attention to nature. You know, we don't pay attention to nature outside of us and its mm-hmm. needs and how to work with it sustainably, but we're also trained to not pay attention to and at work with the nature inside of us, our emotions, our pains, our wounds, our desire. Mm-hmm. We're trains to ignore that and move on and get to the objectives and it it, it leaves us being very ineffective and lonely mm-hmm. so i think that's a great place for people to soak that in while we take a break so stay tuned here on untying knots minds and souls untethered i'm perry clark licensed marriage and family therapist here with eric fitz mid rude i got it this time phd and we're talking, we're talking about their book, The Better Man, The Guide to Consent, Strength, and Relationships, and Hotter Sex. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. 
Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Eric Fitzmidrood, PhD. You got it. Uh, and we're discussing his book, The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. So this next section, which, as you heard in the other section, I said, we're going to come back to that. Uh, we're going to come back to it now. So the section here is 164, Soothing Rejection. And so I'll read this one. The experience of rejection is one in the inevitable pain of love, because other people are not here to fulfill our desires. At some point in our lives, someone is bound to tell us no. When we feel rejected, the pain can be intense because men have been so taught to equate their sexual performance with their identity and self-worth, men often feel that having our sex off- sexual offers declined is to be rejected as a person of value. There are different ways to manage rejected feelings in a relationship versus in hookups or dating. Let's handle rejection in a relationship first. First, whether we're talking about sexual rejection or having your offer to spend time together turned down, have your, interta- have your infant invitation decline is not the same as a partner rejecting you. They are declining what you're offering, when you're offering it, or maybe the way you're offering it. They may still love you, want a relationship with you, or want pleasurable sex with you. Rejection is an emotional experience we have when we interpret the decline offered as a rejection of me. We have all experienced this kind of pain. That suffering really hurts, but your partner may not have felt hurtful towards you. Here are three ways to soothe those feelings of rejection. You're going to have to get the book to get those three ways. But let's talk about that. So this you know, equivalence that men experience between um, am I desired, am I appreciated, am I respected, uh, from a partner and their sexual offers is so intense. I think because one of the only ways that we're taught to let the armor down and to feel intimacy, emotional or uh, physical or sexual is by being sexual. We do all three all at once, and that may be the only pathway. So we're so hungry that we come to it, and there's so much wrapped up in it. There's so much need wrapped up into into it that isn't about the sex that it becomes very hard to manage, and we interpret that process in this catastrophic way. It's the end. It's um, it's a no. It's a rejection of my being. And if we can just settle in and soothe that process, then we get to, on the other side of that self-soothing, this rich place. Why is the partner saying no? What are they teaching us about the nature of their sexual desire? Mm 
What are they teaching us about the whens of their sexual mm-hmm. desire? What are they teaching us about how we engage and maintain our sexual connection as a couple? What are they teaching about how I can approach and initiate more effectively with a no? Sometimes there isn't anything that you can do that's more effective. Sometimes it's not even about you. Mm-hmm. And so it's just so powerful to begin to disentangle no, no thank you, not now, from that idea of who you are as a person. It's, it might not be about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know there's, again, several ways we can go about talking about that. And a couple of them I'll try to hold off on because I think the other two sections might relate to it. Yeah. Um, but what really comes back to it, and this also ties into other things I know I've talked about with narcissism. And I know when we've had uh, Dr. Natalie Jones on, we were talking about narcissism. But that since that, and one of those components of why we often, often ask our clients about their childhood is how much did as a child, it was easier to understand the world by either saying they're at fault or I'm at fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How much of this, even that aspect of dealing with the rejection is much more almost like a inner, their inner child saying you're rejecting me. Right. I must be bad. And I was talking to a client about that this morning. Exactly. The, you, that flip back and forth, right? A man who's getting a lot of declined offers from their partner might become vulnerable to depression, some kind of emotional mental health implosion, because he perceives himself as being at fault or the problem or what's wrong here for being undesirable, unskillful, whatever that is. Or the flip side, right, is kind of moving out into blaming or naming that the partner is cold or frigid or, uh, you know, unconnected or focused on other things or deprioritizing us in our relationship. Rather than sitting in the uncomfortable possibility that maybe we both have some work to do to maintain this part of our relationship. And maybe I would be more skillful in affecting that change to pay attention to my parts, because those are the parts that I have control over. Mm-hmm. Which also becomes a question to start asking when we're practicing therapy, how much is this client turned it internal or external? Yep, exactly. Exactly. And sometimes they can do both, but if they'll, they'll have a greater prevalence towards one or the other. Sure. Or back and forth rapidly. That can happen mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that gets in the way of having a relationship. Because again, that relationship isn't just all you. Right. It's a balance of needs. I'll talk about it as um, emotions and needs calculus. <laughs> how, do we, how do we figure out how to find a sustainable balance between both of our needs in relationship with each other, but also out of relationship with each other? Because our relationship thrives with the energy coming in to our relationship from the outside too. We both need, and our couple needs, connections outside of just us because it's too big, too valuable, and too important to be just sustained by two people who are fragile and frail. Which becomes that aspect of, yeah, whether to where whoever you are and whatever relationship you're in, there's also the need for your friends. Because yes. they're going to fulfill something that can't be fulfilled in that relationship, let alone just the stress somebody will deal with either you're saying that I can't do this or I should be able to do this. And why can't I do this? Which pulls it very much into one of the other sections we're going to talk about here, which I think is the uh, other one. 
I was looking at, which was, I was an asshole. Can I save my relationship? So uh, a little bit tongue in cheek, I'm being playful here. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking with men about sometimes our desires don't fit in the box. We're kinkier than um, we knew when we got into the relationship. We are um, more non-monogamous or more monogamous than we thought we Mm -hmm. were when we got into this relationship. Um, we make mistakes, we um, miss certain things in our relationship or our processes, and, and or even just our fantasies are things that turn our partner off or, you know, mm-hmm. in, in king terms, you know, squick our partner out. And if we can embrace that that makes us uncomfortable or makes us a little bit of an asshole in some aspects, now we have this opportunity, what can I do to... Um, manage that experience in my relationship. A part of my nature is uncomfortable here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's untenable. Mm. How can I be more honest now? How can I be more self-aware now than I was? How can I be in uh, better regulation of my behavior than I was in the past? And so there's this constant opportunity to say, yes, I've made mistakes, But if I'm humble, if I can recognize that that only makes me equal to every other human on the planet, Mm -hmm. if I can let that in and then learn from it, then I can do better in this relationship or the next. And I can work to save my relationship by being clear about it. Mm -hmm. And from the sort of a geek standpoint, I'll bring that in there. Yeah. Just consider how many... As depending on your generation, how many people found the whole gold outfit from that Princess Leia is wearing in Return of the Jedi an awakening experience? Sure. And how many then, in if talking about a heterosexual relationship, wanted their partner to dress up as Leia? Sure. And their partner didn't find it as empowering, even though it was their desire. Right. And I get upset about that. But I think there's other ways, flip ways. What does it mean when? you are the one who wants to dress up as Leia in yeah, that outfit. Yeah. And you want your partner to embody that, either as Han or some might feel even more turned on by Jabba. <laughs> sure. There's a whole um, process in there of accepting your sexual nature that's so important because when you embrace it, whatever it is, now you can attend to it. Now this helps you understand why your erections are or aren't functioning the way that that they are. Mm-hmm. And now you can communicate with your partner about what does and doesn't turn you on more effectively. There are opportunities inside of all of these unexpected findings that we discover along the way about our erotic landscape. And if we embrace that and communicate as clearly and honestly and effectively as we can, on the other side of that, there's the promise and possibility of really amazing pleasure for us and our partner. Maybe, you know, uh, our partner um, entertains us, even though us, you know, dressing up as Leia doesn't do anything for them. Mm-hmm. They entertain us, they exhibit a little bit of generosity, and then we can reciprocate or even lead by saying, you know, what would do it for you? What could I, you know, how could I role play or how could I dress up for you? And we get this beautiful play back and forth of generosity that's gifting and giving pleasure to another person at a time, as opposed to the myths of, you know, simultaneous earth shattering God 
witnessing orgasms at the same time, mm-hmm. which they, they might happen sometimes, but that's not, mm-hmm. that's not the norm. Well, it's also chasing that gear, that idea of it. Yes. And I know, so I was having a conversation oh, so long ago with the idea that in some cases, I, there are ways that people are chasing an experience they had once mm-hmm. with every other experience that they have sexually, romantically. And that was the beauty of that moment. And often that moment emerged, not because you were chasing something, but because mm-hmm. you were following the inspired, you know, tuned in present awareness of what was possible right now. Mm-hmm. And rather than trying to repeat the same jazz, you let this jazz happen. Something new can emerge. Mm-hmm. 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 Very much so. Which that gets back in that standpoint of too of like you will move through different roles as you move through life as a man from the youth to eventually the magician and eventually to the sage right yeah and that can happen in relationship too absolutely in the process of accepting the limitations of how knees bend later in life can allow you to find new positions that allow you to give and receive pleasure in new ways that you hadn't encountered before there's mm-hmm. discovery inside of the novelty. Which on the flip side of that, and then let's talk about one of your other sections, which okay. is the consequences of sexual repression. Now, I didn't okay. read the other section, but I'll read this one. Yeah. If we don't accept human sexuality as it is, we hurt people, including ourselves. In the United States, we're learning this lesson about homosexuality. When individuals can't accept their own sexual orientation, they're at an increased risk of suicide and for being diagnosed with a mental health issue. Conversion therapy, which attempts and fails to change a person's sexuality, is dangerous or is damaging. Fortunately, it's also increasingly outlawed in the United States. We're also learning these lessons about transgender people. As a society, we are becoming more open to concepts like bathrooms of choice, pronouns of choice, and freedom of self-identifying gender. We need to accept the nature of male sexuality, too. We need safe and consensual ways for male uh, sexual desire to be expressed. If they aren't culturally or socially accepted ways for men to express sexual desire, they will find other ways to do so. For example, if being gay is a crime, gay men will create secret ways of identifying and meeting each other in, in secret. If you shame men for masturbating, men will hide their masturbation. Some men may successfully repress themselves, but it, it will be a victory in name only. Denying your sexuality can lead to depression, suicide, anger, sexual opportunism, likely affairs, compulsive sexual behavior, and unprotected sex. These individual problems then become social problems. And there's more to that, but uh, you got to get the book for that. I am so glad that you read that section. It's, It's at the center of my heart in this process. And I think about the vibrant, playful, creative demonstration of male sexuality that's characteristic of some demonstrations of pride. Mm-hmm. And I think this is so important for all men to be able to embrace whatever that looks like for you. Can you playfully, can you um, joyfully embrace the nature of your sexuality for yourself and own it without shame 
and invite your partner to accept that nature of your sexuality without accepting that that obligates them to something, but just mm -hmm. that that is the nature of your sexuality. That's what interests you. That's what, um, that's what arouses you. That's what turns you on. Then you get this, you know, beautiful starting point of just mutual acceptance. We can be honest about who we are. And then now that we're clear about what's here, how can we work with that as a couple, as a triad, as a polyamorous, moresome, whatever that means, what are the possibilities with what's really here? Instead of trying to start with some, you know, stamp from the outside of what we're told we're each supposed to be, and then also what our relationship is supposed to be, which also still happens in gay relationships, trying mm -hmm. to live up to some kind of heteronormative experience instead of embracing what this is for real. Or even a response to the idea of certain body images and just body dysmorphia. Absolutely. Uh, because there is that strong standpoint, even in the gay, especially in the gay community, of uh, Either you're supposed to look like an Adonis or you're supposed to look like a twink. You've got to be that gym-toned appearance or do you just not have enough body hair? Right. And that all plays out. And there's two other things that come to mind. One is also our issue with incels, as mm -hmm. the, that technical term has come up. How much do the last two subjects interplay with that sense that is going on there and not having that... Uh, appropriate mirror for that and in, uh, in identity exploration so let's just comment on that before we go into the next one i that's it i mean being in there's a, a term that is percolating up for me um from other authors about sexual sovereignty mm -hmm. you know owning your own nature and being clear that your pleasure is your own your arousal is your own it belongs to you. And if you accept that responsibility of taking care of yourself, just like you do for taking a shower, just like you do for brushing your teeth, just like you do for your financial self, what does it mean to take care of your sexual self and to embrace it and to tend to it? joyfully and lovingly mm. it eliminates all of the sexual entitlement and it, it completely changes the consent conversations in or out of relationship because now you have something to offer something beautiful something you've tended and cultivated and is mm. somebody interested in joining you in it mm -hmm. which adds to the last part about just that sense of play yes yeah. and the need that and has been shown the number of our sociology and just recently, happened to be watching um, at the time of this recording. It's uh, July, and one of the episodes of Strange New World came out and reminded of the statement from the original series that no matter how intelligent, there is still a need for play. Yeah. And how do we find play not only in our consent, play with our strength, play with our sexualities, but just that sense of play within us? And, and the, the, the deep level of play is that you engage and discover something that you didn't anticipate mm -hmm. because you're open to it. Exactly. Which is something that may even go into what you were talking about with the basketball and hockey, where that sense of play is also there yeah, or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What mm -hmm. are we doing here? Yeah. yeah. Why are we doing this? Who is it for? 
Mm-hmm. And that can that's a line that gets very blurred when we start looking at our media and everything that's happening with televised sports or major event sports versus the pickup game on the court. Yeah. Among friends and community members who are using mm-hmm. the exercise to bond with each other. Mm-hmm. Which, means- is, which is the reminder that sports can be used as a bonding aspect. Yeah. It's not just that competition for, so I would say, resources or to prove who's better or who's stronger. Sure. You know, and not that I would ever want to eliminate all trash talk either, but can mm-hmm. you also celebrate each other? You know, when you did that, that was amazing. Can you lift each other mm-hmm. up, you know, maybe after the game's over, um, as well as that playful competition of like, come on, you can't defeat me. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Which you and I both play role-playing games and yeah. share some of our yeah. high points of our adventures as well. So yeah. just that sense of that comes with sharing those stories or the way we outsmarted the demon or the dragon. <laughs> right. And and that's one of the things that I find so beautiful about that hobby is that it's a collaborative, playful process. I have no idea what's going to happen. It doesn't matter what side of the GM screen I'm on. Mm-hmm. When I sit down, um, I have no idea what's going to happen next because mm-hmm. we're, it's it's going to surprise us all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that leads into my last question for our show is, what do you think is a myth and reality around mental health? I think especially for men, a myth that we have is that we don't need other people, that we can be lone wolves ever and be healthy or well. And the reality is that we all thrive and survive better with more people around us, friends, Mm -hmm. community, family of choice, even if that is your blood family, Mm -hmm. um, and partners. But it can't only be our partners. We need more in order to lean and rely and be needed. And that gives us meaning and purpose. And we are healthier and more well when we embrace that nature. Mm-hmm. Which also, when we look at what nature shows us, going back to it, the lone wolf does not survive long by itself. It either gets absorbed into another pack, or as we now can thank to thank Fido for, it became connected with the hunter and people. Yeah, yeah. To survive, it yeah. cannot survive on its own. We need life around us. To be mm-hmm. as alive as possible, it's it's essential to our well-being. There's, it's not an option. Hmm. So, with that, we should be wrapping up. Where can folks find you if they want to work with you, talk with you more, or get their hands on this book of yours? So, my website is drericfitz.com. D r e r i c f i t z dot com. There are links there to my book, my blog, and um, if people are in California and interested in working with me, you can find that there. You can find me on social media at Dr. Eric Fitz, and my book is available for pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Bookshop.com. Already, it'll so be released. In, yeah. It'll be released well, in September. Right. So by the time you hear this, which will be October, that should be available for you guys to get that. Uh, and we'll have as many of those links there for you as possible. So Eric, I want to thank you for coming on for having another blessed chat. Thank and you. Uh, I look forward to seeing, seeing, getting my signed copy of this book. 
You're going to get one for sure. Thank you very much for having me. All right, folks. Thank you for being here and listening to us and check it out. Consider these things and have that hotter relationship that you want to have and enjoy. And stay tuned for more here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tether. Be well, folks. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.